Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Margie Howe, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. It's uh, really nice to meet you in person. You and I have been uh, exchanging emails for, for quite some time. Uh, we finally made it out to your place, and you and I connected through Crystal Crawford and, and Chuck Bull. They were nice enough to connect, and you pondered it for a while, and then you ultimately decided that you were willing to do this. It was partly because I finally found I had time to do it. Uh, after one spouse dies, there's a lot of stuff to do, and including trying to get an endowment fund at UVA oh, nice. in his name. Uh, he was there for many years after his foreign service career, and uh, I felt he deserved it, something in his name. So That's he, great. He had started the Ramazani chair. I don't know if you knew Dr. Ramazani when you not. were here. I did not. Uh, he was in the foreign affairs, uh, and then they renamed it the politics, a political section or whatever it is, and which my husband objected to because when he was here, it was foreign affairs... Woodrow Wilson Foreign Affairs Department, I think is the name of it. Anyway, they changed it without my husband's permission, so he wasn't happy. <laughs> yeah, it's weird to name it after Woodrow Wilson, because I don't think he has any affiliation with the school, does he? I don't really think so. He was in Stanton across the hills, but uh, I don't know why they did that. Yeah, interesting. All right, let's start from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Bedford County, Virginia. Central Virginia. Was there a town that you grew up in, or did you grow up in the country? I'm a country chick, <laughs> very much so, and still am. I think that's why we love this place when we found it, because it has enough acreage with it and mountains nearby. I'm still on the east side of the Blue Ridge. But uh, fortunately, Nat loved the mountains. He came from Tidewater, Portsmouth, mm. Virginia. But he said when he came down the hill over at Pantops, he looked down, and there was this beautiful town surrounded by mountains. It's a lovely view coming in from Richmond, where you, you saw it this morning, I guess. We did. We did. You did. Yeah, so what was it like growing up in Bedford? It was a very protected place. I mean, I couldn't wait to get away from it as a teenager. <laughs> I wanted to see more of the world. But looking back, I'm so grateful that I did grow up on a farm because we've been in a number of situations as we served in the Middle East. I think we somehow were connected to every war they've had for that period of time. And it was good to know how to take care of ourselves, um, how to get clean water, how to handle things when the electricity was off, um, how to keep ourselves safe and fed. Of course, I, en I ended up sort of as a person who takes and keeps too many things, who hoards things, because you you had to be sure you had enough supplies to last you. And of course on the farm, we did our own cooking, canning, freezing, everything else to have supplies for the winter. And there were times we'd get snowed in. We used to have lizards in Virginia. Right. <laughs> and so we knew a lot about surviving on our own. Did you have chores? I worked my tail off. <laughs> what time did you wake up as, say, like a seven, eight-year-old? Uh, they did let me sleep in in the mornings, pretty much. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> I'm and not either. I, I didn't have to milk cows in the morning. 
I did do a lot of milking in the evenings, though. That was one of my chores. I also learned to drive on my dad's little red farmall tractor. Uh, he would hook it up to a trailer, and I would drive it through the field very slowly and very carefully because my uncle would be standing on the trailer to receive the bales of hay mm -hmm. that were much smaller in those days. You could pick them up. Even I could pick them up then. And my father would throw them onto the trailer, and my uncle would be stacking them, and I'm driving very carefully, very slowly through the field. That's fun. It was fun. I guess I started that as long as, as soon as my legs were long enough to reach the brakes, <laughs> clutch and everything. It takes a bit of getting used to. Nowadays, you know, you in your cars are everything's automatic. You just have the There's no clutch. No clutch. Yeah. yeah. So and that stood me in good stead when our first tour was in Cairo in Egypt and we went on a trip through the desert down to the Valley of the Kings mm -hmm. and the, uh, what was becoming the Aswan Dam. The Russians were still building it when we were there in the 60s, mid-60s. And we were on this big Jeep-like thing, but that was our main conveyance for the two couples. And uh, we were traveling together with another couple. And there were times they'd put me in the seat because I knew how to do the clutches and everything and have to push to get us out of a sandbar or something. <laughs> So came in handy. Came in very handy. Now, yeah. And the farm you grew up on was it a dairy farm? Yeah, uh, and beef. My dad had both types of cattle, and raised a lot of hay and corn. And uh, we had huge gardens, and it was a all-purpose farm. Lots of wheat. Uh, those were the main crops. He had grown tobacco. But when he got married, he quit that. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Did you tend to the garden? I helped. I helped. My uncle usually planted the garden. Uh, and then would use lots of insecticide to protect the plants and do some weeding. I think they sort of kept me out of the garden because when I was little, I'd be going along pulling up the good plants that my uncle had left, imitating him. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't help, need that much help. <laughs> I was going to say, not that helpful. Uh -huh. uh, is your family from Bedford going back generations? Uh, my dad's family was because, well, my grandfather Saunders had bought that place in Bedford. My mother came from also Bedford County, but a little bit further north, near Monita, which is now famous because of Smith Mountain Lake. Mm which didn't exist when I was a child. How did Smith Mountain Lake form? The electric company uh, wanted a dam where the Smith Mountain Gap is. Mm. And that had been in the planning for many years, but it finally came to fruition in the early 60s. And so my kids were very small, but whenever we visited, the grandparents and my uncle and aunt who lived there at the farm We'd always go and see how much progress had been made on the dam. And now, I mean, it's been a tourist destination for... Since the 60s, yeah. For decades, yeah. Yeah. That's neat. Are, uh, are you the first generation to go to college in your family? No. Um, well, I guess I was at that time. I had cousins in Roanoke who went, and one in Richmond who were going to college, and another one on my mom's side. So we sort of... 
And then my mom went after we did. <laughs> really? My mom did. She had gotten married young after she met my dad. She'd finished high school, was valedictorian, loved mm. to read, but she was the youngest in her family, as, as was my dad, actually, although they were 12 years apart. Her dad had died when she was nine. Mm. And her mother was loath to let her go to college at age 16. She was very young, so there wasn't an eighth grade at that time. So the year she was, her gap year, she met my daddy mm -hmm. at a church revival. And that's where you met people in those days, <laughs> or through family. And a couple of years later, they were married. Mm -hmm. So she married young, had four children, was a very industrious housewife, farm wife. She milked cows too. And she had grown up on a farm as well, of course. She had moved into my dad's home, which was the Saunders family home, where he lived with his oldest brother, my uncle, and his wife. Now, they never had children, but we four more than made up for it. <laughs> and eventually, they built a house right next door. Okay, that's perfect. It was perfect. And no eighth grade, no twelfth grade back then, too, right? Yeah, they had a twelfth grade. Did they? Okay. It, she went to Manita High School, which was consolidated in the 60s, I believe. And so now they just have an elementary, and I guess the middle school is probably mixed in with the elementary there now. now I guess it depends on uh, the county or the city that you go to school in, because my grandmother is about your mom's age, I imagine, uh, did, did not go to 12th grade because hmm. it didn't exist back then. I see, yeah. yeah. Where I grew up, there was a historic old school, one of the first in southern Bedford County, I'm trying to think of the name of it, um, Mount Pleasant Academy or something like that. It was in walking distance, just down the end of the road at my farmhouse. And that's where all my uncles and aunts and dad went. They walked to school each day. Mm. But to go to high school, I think it only went through eighth grade. They had to ride a horse or something five miles to Huddleston which is the main, Ed and Manita are the two main towns on the Bedford County side of Smith Mountain Lake. So my grandfather was ill at that point when my dad was ready for high school. My uncle had managed to get a high school education and later went on to be the mail route uh, postal person in our part of the county there. A lot of his route was taken up by Smith Mountain Lake at some point. Uh, anyway, my dad often subbed for him, too. But anyway, my dad's dad got sick, and so when it came time for spring plowing, it was just too much to try to be the main one farming to help his, his dad and to ride a horse five miles each day, one way right. back. So he dropped out after sixth grade, although I think he may have repeated sixth grade a couple of times just to get more, and he, I'm sure the teacher helped him get more and more. So neither of our fathers got past sixth grade officially. Mm. But they were whiz-bangs. They knew their math. They, my father-in-law knew how to do gears and make tractors and things like that, which I was amazed at. But uh, my dad was very smart, too. I remember once I had him help me with a arithmetic assignment I had. I had some homework. 
and I was having some trouble. I had skipped grades, I think. I had skipped from first to third grade that year. And then they started me with music lessons as well, which happened to occur when she, the, the teacher was teaching math to my class. So I'd be out of the math class mostly. So I was having trouble keeping up with arithmetic and being behind already having skipped a grade. They don't do that much anymore, I think. So I asked my dad for some help. Well, he not only helped me with the assigned problems, but she had assigned every other one. And he had me do the whole damn page. <laughs> Sorry. And you're like, Dad, Dad, you... I don't have to do this. Let's see you do, though. I never ask him again for help. <laughs> you think he intentionally did that so you wouldn't ask him for help anymore? I, I remember a sly smile on his face at that time. I was not very happy with him. <laughs> Dad, you should have reminded him that he didn't uh, get past the sixth grade. <laughs> Didn't think of that. <laughs> I used to love it when my uncle, who was 10 years older than my dad, who was like my granddad, in effect, would tell stories about when Clyde, when my dad was young, and my dad would look shocked. Hell, he didn't remember any of this stuff and all the meanness he used to do and tr tricks he used to play on his siblings. <laughs> Every child loves to hear that story. <laughs> Absolutely. So when did you know you were going to go to college? How old were you? Oh, that was never any question. I was born going to college. Really? See, my mother hadn't gone. Oh, so she knew her, that was her babies were going to go. That was go. her dream when she was young. I mean, she wanted to be like a librarian or a teacher or something like that. But she had switched and got on board completely as the farm wife and working with my dad, his partner. Um, there were four of us. I was the first of four children, three girls and a boy. And from our mother's milk, we knew we were going to college. Mm. And Daddy agreed completely, wholeheartedly. So this farmer was working his, his tail off to get enough money ahead to send us to college, and did. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of money, even back then. A lot of money. <clears throat> I remember being very happy that when I was in my two years of nursing school here at UVA as an upperclassman, we could work on weekends uh, up to four days a month, which paid for our room and board. Oh. It was a good deal. As a working nurse? Yeah. Oh. They needed extra hands on the weekends, and they were very dependent on students mm. helping, and uh, which was fine as long as you had access to an RN, someone who really knew what they were doing, and we were just learning at the time. So we got a lot of on-the-job experience like that, but it helped with the tuition. And I was old enough, I was over four years older than my well, four years older than my next sister. Plus, I'd skipped a grade, so I was out of college before she even started, right. which helped too. But then he had overlapping sisters <laughs> in, in, in Madison, actually, Madison College, now JMU. Then my brother started school up here at UVA too, and his turn came. At that point, my mother, who was still in her 40s probably, since she'd started this family young, decided she was too young to sit down like a grandmother on the porch. Now, she only had two grandchildren, our two. And we were going to Egypt that year, first overseas tour. She decided to do something about that. So she got herself a job as an assistant at the elementary school in Manita and started classes with the community college mm -hmm. and eventually graduated from Lynchburg College and taught for 13 years. Oh, good for her. Her own career. 
and that made such a I mean she was just someone uh, there I loved her example and aspired to it she was 84 when she died a month after she turned 84 well I turned 84 in December <laughs> so uh, that whole month afterwards I was thinking about it but I'm beyond that now you're beyond that now my aunt, on the other hand, never had any children, but lived to be 104 and a, mm. and a half, and was in her right mind and in great health until her last six months of her life when she began to be more wheelchair-bound. I decided to go after her example. As you should. As you should. Your mom was valedictorian, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that she was a farmer's wife raising four children sending them all to college no question she was going to do that and then went back to school had her own career she sounds like a force she was a workhorse and my sisters and i all agreed she could work circles around us she just had a lot of stamina a lot of energy and she worked hard yeah she had great plans for me it turned out i didn't know this until many years later in my own career as a psychiatric nurse and teacher and therapist that she always thought and hoped I would become the dean of the nursing school here. <laughs> that was the furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> that's not what I do. <laughs> that's, it's, that's administrative, right? Being yeah. a dean like that? Yeah. yeah that's not be. for everybody. It's not for everybody. Not for me. I considered becoming a doctor, actually. My daddy told me he would put me through medical school. I talked to some professor, a professor at uh, Mary Washington about that. There were a lot of problems we did have women doctors back in the 50s, but it was very hard to get into medical school. As a woman. As a woman. And I didn't have the fire in my belly to want that. You have to have the fire. You have to. I wanted a family. I wanted, I, once I found psychiatric nursing, I knew why I was there. I wasn't that happy in nursing until I found the psychology part of it. Right. And it was like the light went on. And that was in my third year. I already had a year and a half of nursing under my belt at that point. I wasn't that happy. Mm. But, you know, once you get into something, it's hard to back out. And I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do other than that. In those days, I was still affected by the idea you could be a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher. And I didn't want to be a secretary. And I have a business mind. I didn't like what I'd seen of teaching. Of course, it had only been my own experience through college and uh, especially didn't want to be in education in high school or elementary school I knew I didn't want I didn't like kids that much <laughs> my own too that was different and so I was sort of backed into nursing well I had seen how important nurses were when I had typhoid fever at age 10 oh gosh now, you don't hear about many people having that these days but there was there were some contaminated wells I think in my neighborhood mm. We got our water from a spring It was fresh and it did not test, but there were a couple of neighbors that I had drunk water from that may have had been contaminated. I don't know for sure. But as the doctor said, most of us fend off these germs as a matter of course, but my immune system was a little out of whack or something that spring. And so I was a sick puppy in the hospital for several weeks and my mother was with me through all that. Yeah, I imagine you feel lucky to have survived that. Apparently I am. Uh, they took good care of me. And I remember that soft diet I had. One day they 
brought me a soft-boiled egg for th every three meals, and I, I rebelled. I said, I've had it with the <laughs> soft-boiled eggs. <laughs> Still don't like them. <laughs> Too much of anything is uh, too much. The fact that I rebelled, I guess, showed I was getting stronger, too. Absolutely. So, from Bedford County, how did you end up going to Mary Washington? That was the most recommended path to the nursing program. Ah. I had a couple of uh, older friends, two women, who graduated from my high school before me, who had gone that path. And the nursing degree program was fairly new. It started in the early 50s, I guess. And so I, I knew they had gone, they had succeeded, they had become nurses with degrees. And uh, the uh, my our country doctor, Dr. Sam Rucker, had a nurse sister. That, and my mother knew the family extremely well. She'd always lived in the neighborhood. And uh, she, my mother did some sleuthing for me and talked to Mary Rucker about nursing when she found out that that's where I was headed. And Mary had had a diploma. Everybody had a diploma in nursing in those days. It wasn't a college degree. But she knew about the news, these new programs. There was one at MCV and one at UVA in the state. Of course, state tuition was, we stayed in the state for all our degrees, except for my brother who went to Tennessee, but that's a different story. And so Mary said to my mother, don't do the three. Don't have her do the three-year program. Get that nursing degree. And then that opens the road to teaching and other things, and to master's degrees. And that's the road I took. So you did two years at Mary Washington, then you transferred. Two years here to UVA, and then worked briefly as a floor nurse on the psychiatric units. In those days, we had two units that I was very oh, much familiar with as a student, and then as a teacher. They needed someone to teach that after I graduated that fall, got my RN after taking the state board successfully. And I was not only valedictorian of my high school class, but I was a top scorer in my nursing class too. Nice. Nice. I had a lot of competition, but I, I think I ended up with the highest score. They needed a new teacher because one was resigning, her husband was finished his courses and was going back somewhere another West Virginia or somewhere. And so they thought of me. They knew I had been a high striving student and so they invited me to teach. And of course you, in those days, I guess still you make a lot more teaching than you do as a floor nurse. Really? A lot more teaching. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean it was only, I don't think that's true today. Probably not. Probably not. And a lot depends on what credentials you bring too right. to the program. So I had my B.S. in nursing, and this was 1960. Uh, had to wait for my husband. He was a year younger than I. He had he didn't finish till 61. So you met him at UVA? Almost. I met him with a group of UVA men when a group of Mary Washington women, all Baptist students, went down to a conference at Wake Forest, North <laughs> Carolina. <laughs> yeah, I was going to be a missionary nurse. Really? Because you knew you wanted to travel. I wanted to travel. I didn't want to go alone. You didn't want to stay in Bedford? No. <laughs> My daddy one day said, why, do, why can't you marry a banker in Bedford or something? You know? I just shook my head. Dad, that hadn't been in the cards ever. Not in the cards ever. Yeah. Yeah. So you knew that while you were in school? 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. I met him at that conference, and then the next fall I came to school here myself, and by then he was in his second year, and uh, we got engaged, I guess, when he was in his fourth year. Oh, wow, okay. Maybe I'd have to think about that one. But you were both in your early 20s. Yeah. Yeah, he was just nine months younger. And did you know he wanted he was going to be in the diplomatic services? When Nat Howell was 10 years old, he declared to everyone he was going to be an ambassador. Wow. He had no what? clue what that meant. <laughs> but he had an uncle, Uncle Julian, who traveled with Standard Oil in Turkey and Lebanon and Middle East, once got arrested when they thought he was Lawrence of Arabia. But his company bailed him out very mm. quickly, thank goodness. He would send letters and uh, party favors to my to his sister. My mother-in-law was the youngest in her family, so he would send. He would write her frequently and send party favors and stuff. And so Nat grew up hearing about Uncle Julian and his travels in the Middle East. And he couldn't wait to travel. He was going to be an ambassador. He thought it was lots of parties and all this good stuff and travel. Yeah, that's. Uh... I mean, if that's what you love to do, being in the diplomatic services and ultimately being an ambassador, you get to travel everywhere. And, and they pay your expenses. <laughs> you get free airplane tickets. So y'all were married by the time uh, you graduated. No, 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 no. By the time he I, graduated. We got married the same month he graduated, June of 1961. Okay. And I was already teaching at that point. Uh before the year was quite out, in May of 62, our oldest son, Chip, was born. And then his brother in 64, two years later. And when Chip had to go to student health here at UVA, they couldn't believe how low his number was. Because being born in the hospital, he got assigned a number, a patient number so-and-so. Right. And they keep that forever, in case you come back. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Both boys are born here. My husband got his PhD here at UVA in okay. foreign affairs from the Wilson Department, right, right. <laughs> which is now politics with Larry Sabato, who's famous in his own right. And in 65, he graduated, he got his PhD. He didn't stop for a master's, he just kept going and got it. So from 61 to 65, he was working on his PhD while I was teaching and having babies. And I don't know how we did it, but you know, you have a lot of more energy when you're young. <laughs> In your 20s, you definitely have a lot more energy. A lot more energy, thank goodness. That's why I'm glad we had our kids young, because I had more energy. Yeah. So then he joins the Foreign Service, and I said, okay, it's my turn. So I applied and got into Catholic University near D in D.C., which had an excellent, still does as far as I know, excellent uh, master's program for nurses. So he's he's joining the Foreign Service, and I'm going into a two-year program. And we both had traineeships, of course. We had gotten some financial help along the way, and we're living independently and with two babies. And then in 60, okay, he joined the Foreign Service in 65. In 66 summer, he went to Egypt, to Cairo, for his first overseas assignment. By himself. By himself. I finished that calendar year for my first year of my two-year program. So there I am with two little kids uh, on a plane going to Cairo. Now, I had been on an airplane 
once before when I was mid-college between my Mary Washington and UVA. I had gone as a little ba a Baptist student missionary, they called it, for six weeks to California of all places. So in those days you had prop planes. And I remember as we went over the Grand Canyon, there it was, you know, below us, and we were sort of <laughs> bumping along. You could feel that those planes weren't as large as it got later. So for our overseas tours, we had larger planes, which you had a smoother ride generally. But that has to be a, a, a scary thing to fly for the first time, what, five or six hours out to California, and then your second flight is all the way to Cairo. I think I was more exhilarated and excited than mm. scared. But going to Cairo then with two little boys, that was that trip was noteworthy. First of all, we flew from Lynchburg to New York, and there was a storm going on. We got held up. We circled New York for what seemed like hours, me with two sleepy little boys. We got there too late to catch our connecting flight to Cairo. So they sent cables, supposedly. I told them what the situation was. They put us up overnight, and then the next morning we caught the next chance to go to Cairo. Well, this turned out to be one of those planes that stops at every port on the way to Cairo. Oh. So I have been at the airport in Portugal, in Spain, in Italy, in Greece. Yeah, I guess that's it. Before we got to Cairo. That's a lot. We circled the Mediterranean practically to get to Cairo. Meanwhile, he had not gotten any word of where we were and why we didn't come on the flight he thought we were coming on. So he met every plane coming in that day until finally he went home exhausted to bed. So I get to Cairo, and in those days, there was no air conditioning. This is in September. It was still hot, pretty hot. Hubbub, hubbub. And I'm standing there with my luggage and my two little boys thinking, okay, I gotta get myself to the embassy because I didn't know where he was living at the point. And this dark, nice young man comes up to me and says, are you, in, in, with an accent, are you Mrs. Howell? He had alerted all the drivers who met every airplane to get packages and mail and visitors and everything that I, hopefully we'll be coming in that night. So I get into this little embassy car. I don't, I don't think it was, I didn't think to look at the plates to make sure it was an embassy car. But I'm so tired at this point, traveling all that day and stopping at every place. We almost got kicked off in Spain, I think it was, because they had rebooked our seats for somebody else. Because I was an add-on, you know, to the original flight. I wasn't getting off that plane with my little boys and didn't. So that I don't know what happened to the people who thought they had my seats. But anyway, <laughs> we got to Cairo. I get into this plane, this car with a stranger, and he took us to where Nat was living. It was an embassy apartment building, not too far from the embassy. We were so happy to be there. And back then, you didn't consider Cairo a dangerous place, or Nat didn't consider it dangerous at all. I imagine. We knew it was a police state. Mm. We knew our phones were bugged. We had a good friend, an American, German-American lady married to one of our officers 
who was chatting with her friend in German one day, and somebody came on and said, speak in English. Some stranger, somebody nobody had Yeah, somebody was listening. And other ways, you know, you have these clicks and all this stuff. And we also knew that every policeman on every corner was watching us. See, our cars were embassy cars. They were watching us and seeing where we went all the time. So, what were they worried about? What were they worried about? Who, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, they were very much at odds with Israel. Mm. Yes, back in the 60s and 70s in particular. Yes. And that's why we left in a hurry, because of their fracas with Israel in 67, the right. year after I got there. So our tour there was cut short. Mm. So our first tour, we go to Cairo. We get kicked out because of the Six-Day War. Kids and I are sent ahead of the war, thank goodness, to Greece for evacuation, safe haven. Because the American government knew it was coming? No. You got lucky. We were very much on alert at that point. Uh. We had a UN contingent that was keeping Israel and Egypt apart. The Israelis wouldn't allow them on their side of the border, so the Egyptians had them in the Sinai. And when Nasser got upset, he decided that he didn't like the UN there. It kept him from, I don't know, from whatever. He kicked them out. And I was there when they left, when the troops left. Well, all the embassies were watching this. We knew there was going to be a fracas. So they got those of us in Egypt out of there, women and children and kept basically just the most essential people at, at the embassy, a very much uh, lowered group of people, I mean, in terms of numbers, got everybody out they could. Of course, everybody wants to be labeled as essential. You don't want to get be sent with all the others out, but that was essential, even though he was, this was his first tour. That, by that point, he was the ambassador's aide, and one ambassador had just left, a new one had arrived, and the morning they were to go present the credentials to Nasser. They were standing outside, and all this flack and stuff came down. The mm. war was on already. The Israelis had preempted the the whole fight. They they started it, yeah, because that way they had surprise on their hands. They were very upset. They claimed the Americans were helping them. We weren't. We didn't know they were going to do that, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, they felt that it had to be American pilots in those planes and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And NASA resigned, and there was a mass murmuring over the city. They were The whole population in Cairo and the country was very upset. They didn't want that because they had just been walloped by... Israel, and and I wasn't there, but Nat described the crowds, and they, the Americans were trying to keep a very low profile and not get caught in a mob or something. They put them on a train. They broke relations with the United States. They put the Americans, anybody with an American passport was stuck on a train to get to Alexandria to get a boat out of the country. Wow. Including students. Uh, teachers at the American University, anybody with an American passport. We had a number of black students there, black Muslims, 
and they kept saying, you know, we are we are Muslims, we are your brothers. They were put on the train too. Everybody was kicked out if you had an American passport. Right. So he came out having to carry not a couple of suitcases of our stuff. Of course, the boys and I had carried out what we could, and we were sent to Greece. He he had the honor of carrying the last American. Uh, what's the word I want? He was a courier for embassy papers and stuff. You know, practically they handcuff you to the, <laughs> the case you're carrying all these documents in. And the stuff. most important documents in the yeah. embassy. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, I guess they had shredded and burned what they could otherwise. That's wild, right? You're in your 20s with two young kids, and you had come back a little bit early, but, I mean, I... I, had, I, I was in I, Greece. I imagine it was tense while you were in country and tense knowing that Nat was in harm's way, potentially. Yeah. I was with other potential widows, too, of course. Right. Uh, women and children. We lost one American. He was kicked out of the hospital. He had a bleeding ulcer. Mm. And they tried to get help for him in Alexandria. He was there on the dock with the others on his stretcher, and he died. Wow. So you had that sort of thing going on. And his wife and kids were with the rest of us in Greece. So these experiences can be very, they can happen very quickly, and, very, and they're very dangerous. Yeah, and a bleeding ulcer in a normal situation, even back then, it's not a problem to care for. But if you're kicked out of medical care, yeah, exactly. And they did, you know, his compatriots did what they could to keep him comfortable and in the shade and all that. But no, the stress added to his problems. Did you or Nat ever second guess your desire to travel around the world doing that sort of work? <laughs> we didn't have any sense at all. We... <laughs> that first year was very interesting because not only was I in Cairo, but first then I'm in Greece, and then he joins us. They do get a ship up to Greece. We have a few, few, solid, a few weeks there. In July, we were sent to Paris, where he was assigned to NATO. That's a good gig. That's a good gig. But De, De Gaulle kicked them out of Paris. Really. That same year, 67, NATO, they had some warning. De Gaulle just didn't want them. Nat helped NATO move from Paris to Brussels. Mm. Now, I never got to Brussels. Um, Meanwhile, we're in Paris in July, and in August we go to to Paris. We spend several weeks there in Paris. So the end of August... I said, okay, this is a very uncertain thing. All our belongings were mostly in Cairo still. We finally got them a year later, most of them. But Mm. our clothes, you know, we only brought out summer clothes. I have these two little kids. I'm thinking, if I go back, I can start my second year at least of graduate school in D.C. And you come when you can. (laughs) So the kids and I came home. That August, I got an apartment. The kids went back to the same nursery school they'd had when we first went to Washington during my first year at graduate school. And then Nat came home for Christmas, mid-December, expecting to go back to Brussels in January. Well, his job got cut. Ooh. Ooh. So he has to find a new job. So he found he finally got in, in the intelligence uh, 
INR, it's called, Intelligence and Research in State Department. He had a, a buddy there, sort of a mentor, who took him in, and he had a job then back home, which enabled me to finish my next calendar year graduate school. I've been blessed. I was very fortunate. So I just I had a year in Cairo between the two years of classes in my graduate program. Got stuck on the research paper I had to do. That's uh, I'll continue with that in a minute. So the kids and I came back, and I got into school, and then he came back. We were living in D.C. This is spring of 68. I'm finishing up my program. Nat took the kids to the circus, and they came home and had mumps. Mm. <laughs> well, it seems I hadn't had them either. I nursed my kids through their mumps. They're fine. And then I get, you know, chipmunk cheeks. I, don't know, I thought I was dying because it affected my balance, my middle ears, right. and all this swelling. And the day I decided I'm going to live, after all, I had missed some of my classes, too, for a couple of weeks. Martin Luther King was killed. Mm. This is 1968 in Washington, D.C. now. We had tanks on the streets protecting ABC stores and other buildings. And I had just come from a place that had tanks on the streets in Cairo. Lots of tanks. Yeah. And so suddenly my country was at war too. DC was, parts of it was going up in flames. It was an exciting spring. 68 was a very wild year. It was a very wild year. So we, in June, early June, we moved back to Virginia, to Arlington side. We decided that's where we'd rather live. And it's closer to the State Department too. So we're back in Virginia and Robert Kennedy got assassinated. And again, being upset. But that was quite a year, 68. I had gotten stuck doing the research paper. Somehow I I did not like statistics. I did not understand. Well, finally, Catholic University had so many of us, like me, who were stuck at that point. They'd done, we'd done all the classes. That They started a new class for people like us who could do a dissertation in a group. And I joined one of those groups. And by that time, he suddenly gets reassigned overseas. He decided to take the Arabic language course that they had in Beirut, going back to see overseas again. And Beirut was supposedly the Paris of the Middle East at that time. We knew there were problems there from the beginning because they had this split between Christians and Muslims and all that stuff. Uh, and they didn't always work well with each other, but it was pretty calm in those days. So our next assignment was in uh, Beirut. I finished my coursework for this special class, actually sat for my exams in Beirut at the American University. They had an arrangement with them the American University of Beirut is accredited by New York State Unit, New York State, anyway. So the nursing school there was a lot like the one I had been at in UVA in the early 60s. So there I am in the early 70s in Beirut teaching again psychiatric nursing because they needed someone with a master's degree, and I had just gotten mine. And they had also uh, 
had they had also helped me with my uh, exams, my proctoring. That's the word I want. And that's how I got to know people at the nursing school at AUB, and how I got the job then for the next couple of years at AUB. So you taught it at University of Beirut. Wow. So UVA, University of Beirut, and later George Mason. <laughs> after we came home uh, for a while. So, and I had not wanted to be a teacher, but this was different. <laughs> this was, a, and in Beirut, of course, I had students from all over. We had five, no, we had three ladies from Ethiopia. We had a whole bunch of people from the camps, the Palestinian camps. They would send, and they had a lot of men nurses over there, because you do a lot of separation of the sexes over there. So women patients would have women nurses, men patients would have men nurses. And then I had people who were just simply from Lebanon as well, Lebanese students. And I taught with a young Palestinian woman who had her bachelor's degree from AUB. Ah. So Nina and I were a team, and that was a wonderful two years to teach there. And the programs, it was like being back at UVA. They were like 10 years behind. They still had two programs. They still had the diploma program and the degree program, the three-year hospital program, and then the degree program from the university, which we had had when I first started teaching at UVA. But while I was here, we faculty said, we need to focus on the master's program. We're in a university setting. They can get the three-year thing elsewhere, although it was a great program, but they weren't getting college credit for it. Right. And that, does, that did not seem fair to me. So with much wailing and gnashing of teeth, we stopped the program here for diploma students. And so I was involved with the very last of those groups too, here at UVA. So anyway, I've just been blessed by opportunities opening up different points along the way. So I was able to keep my career going too, as well as be a foreign service spouse. Were you able to keep it going the entire time you guys were overseas? I'm very flexible, as it turns out. So I taught in Beirut. The next place was the new country of the United Arab Emirates, mm. where Abu Dhabi is the capital, and Dubai is a big city there too. And so we were in Abu Dhabi the year it got its independence completely from Great Britain, uh. 72. By that time, my husband had finished his language program. Arabic's a hard language. I've been told it's the hardest to learn for an English speaker, besides maybe Mandarin or Chinese. Yeah, Chinese is worse, is sure, for sure. But uh, he did very, very well. He had a lot of tutoring, and he had the interest, and he uh, learned a lot about music, Arab-type uh, music, and uh, some of the more racy terms they use, and he, <laughs> that kept him interested. And so. He had that under his belt, and then he was sent to help open our first embassy in Abu Dhabi. And they uh, went to, uh, uh, I'll come up with a minute, well, a country in Saudi Arabia, a uh, city in Saudi Arabia that's closest to the UAE, and that was sort of, they took off and went down there and found a building to rent. And there were just three officers at first. My husband was the second in command, so he had three officers, and they all helped each other. So we had a, someone to deal with our own 
people who come to visit and to work there, the consular section. And then we had fledgling departments for everything else that the, the two men, the ambassador, no, he wasn't the ambassador, he was a charge. The ambassador for a whole bunch of those countries in the Gulf, when we first opened our embassies in Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, the Kuwaiti, Amer the American who was the American ambassador in Kuwait was also accredited to all those countries. Mm. So Ambassador Stoltz would come visit us every now and then, and his wife came to visit us, and I had a reception for her, you know. And, but being the ones in Abu Dhabi, we got to know all the other embassies and their ambassadors and their wives, the Brits and the French and you know everyone else, which was really nice. Um, so they sent him to a country where his Arabic was very useful. They have dialects, but he, he was doing very well with his Arabic in, in Abu Dhabi. And many of them spoke English as well. Uh, many more now, I'm sure. So we had this little fledgling group, and so we wives did a lot of uh, helping <laughs> at that point. We were unpaid helpers, like when they wanted a economic survey sort of thing on how what, what are the prices of this, this, and this for families right. in Abu Dhabi. Um, we started our own school. There had been a small private group with the Phillips Company. They were a business, American business, and they had a small school. So we took over their grounds, and we had a whole bunch of Quonset huts and trailers and a trailer for each grade, basically. And I was school nurse. <laughs> and I taught basic science to sixth graders, mm. uh, biology, no, chemistry to seventh graders. We went through the eighth grade and uh, biology to the ninth graders. And your boys were in the school as well at the time. Chip was in sixth grade that year that I taught. And that worked out fine. I never thought I could teach my own child, but I was teacher there and mom the rest of the time. Yeah. So those were a good two years. It was a small school. We knew everybody, you know, every American, <laughs> I'm sure, in the area. And we had a few uh, we had a few Brits who came to our school. Most of the Brits tend to, at that time, would send their kids at age seven and up back home mm. to a residence school. That's tough. We lived next door to a family that did that. And it just broke my heart to see those children having to leave and go back to England. Boarding school for a 14-year-old is very different than for a seven-year-old. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Were your boys educated overseas the entire time? No, no. So we had the... We started out with some schooling in Beirut when that was in language school. Then they had the American school in uh, Abu Dhabi. After two years there, they suddenly reassigned that back to Beirut because the political officer in this larger embassy had gotten very ill, mm. a good friend of ours actually. And so he came back in May and the kids and I followed then in, uh, after school was out. And, shipped all our stuff back to Beirut. And then the kids had 
that was nice because they went back to the American school in Beirut and they knew some people from, some kids, some friends from there. So that was great for a year. Uh, and we had home leave every two years. Mm -hmm. So we came back that summer between those two places, Abu Dhabi and Beirut, for a break. And we're all set to stay in Beirut for the next two years. Uh, I, there wasn't a position for me in the nursing school this time. So what I did, I did some visits with the UN people to Palestinian camps, got to know some of those people. And Edward, our younger son, was, was taking horseback riding lessons which were right next to one of the Palestinian camps when the Israelis attacked that camp one wow. day. Uh, the planes they sent up were buzzing our embassy. You know, you could practically wave, you could wave hello to them. And there was shelling out there. Well, he, the kids got home safe, but that's too close. Way too close. Way too close. We had escaped all the mess in Cairo by being sent out of there early, but... That was hard. And then, let me think this through here. So this was our second time back in Beirut. Both times we lived on the piece of land that juts out into the Mediterranean, so mm -hmm. we could see the sea from our apartments up high. It's gorgeous, I imagine. It was lovely, lovely. Although, I, I, at some point I learned that raw sewage is pumped into the Mediterranean from that city. Mm -hmm. It still is, I'm sure from the hotels and everything else. Anyway, we, we braved the water a few times <laughs> up from the way, away from the hotels. Summer of 75, the Civil War began. We didn't know it at the time. There was a fracas down south and then it died down and then it was another fracas, a different group. And of course you always had the Israelis and the uh, Palestinians shooting at each other across the border. In fall of 75, things got hotter and hotter until two of our embassy employees were picked up by one of the rebel groups or something in, in uh, Beirut, mm. at which point the embassy people had been watching the situation very carefully, decided it was time to get the women and children and, and people who didn't need to be there essential non-essential personnel out of there. So we went back to Greece a second time. Mm. And fall of 75. The poor kids, you know, they'd been in school in Beirut, then Abu Dhabi, then back to Beirut. Now they're in school in Greece. Mm. Uh, Chip was in eighth grade by that time. Edward was in six I suppose so we found a little apartment the tourists were all gone from Greece both times the first time I had gone to Greece from Cairo in the spring or early 67 66 sorry 66 no 67 I was right the first time the Greeks had just had a change of government, uh, junta, they call it, you know, J-U-N-T-A. Mm -hmm. 
and so there were no tourists, and so there were all these wonderful places to we could stay mm. as refugees. Second time, there was an American base there with lots of uh, touristy summer places, little apartments. So we had our pick of those second go round at the end of October when we were sent out of uh, Beirut. It took them four months to get those men free. Wow. Meanwhile, lots of things could have happened to them. They were, our building was hit once by some stray mortar or something. Uh, at that point, we had adopted a Doberman puppy. She and her mother had belonged to the security officer in Thailand, I think it was Thailand, where there was a coup or something, and so they had had an exciting first place where the puppy was born, came to Beirut. Well, you can imagine the security officer and, and those left at the embassy were very busy, they weren't home much. And so the pups, the pup and her mother would be barking and playing on his balcony because it was still quite warm then that fall in Mediterranean weather. And the neighbors, he got word that they were going to shoot those dogs if they didn't, if he didn't do something about them. Yeah. So this was before we actually left for Greece again. So Sid was a good friend of Nat and asked him if he would consider taking the puppy, the puppy Doberman. Well, we hadn't had a dog before. We never had Dobermans. I, I didn't think that was a good idea. I didn't know the dogs well. Of course, within five minutes, once he brought the puppy to us, she and I were attached, like, you know, sisters. She'd follow me around everywhere. So we left her with Nat <laughs> when uh, the kids and I, the boys and I, went to Greece in October. Eventually, he shipped her out to us and the car, <laughs> getting stuff out of Beirut. And meanwhile, they were trying to get the two embassy employees free who had been kidnapped. And they'd almost have a deal with this group or that group. And of course, you had to work through intermediaries. You couldn't, you weren't dealing with the kidnappers directly. And then the deal would fall through, Friday would blare out again, and, and it just went on and on. And I'm touching the table again. Uh, those were exciting times, scary times. I was going to say more scary than anything. More scary, yeah. So finally, uh, after four months, after the new year, the men were free. I was living right next door to one of the wives and her and their four children. And the other lady and her son were in a different place. Finally got them free and they went home. And then family by family the the guys or the women got reassigned different places so the boys and I were the last family in uh, Greece that had come out in October meanwhile Nat was trying to get re relocated he'd had it with Beirut by that time but for various reasons nothing else worked out finally he realized It'd be better if he just stuck it out where he was in Beirut and let the kids be in the school they were in without another relocation back to the States or anything. Let them finish the school year. 
and he was slated to come out in late in June or late sorry late May I believe it was and we had a new ambassador in Beirut and on the day he was to present his credentials to the Lebanese president who was French speaking it was a toss-up whether Nat would go, but Nat's Arabic had superseded his French. He had had French training earlier in mm. the Department of State. And the economic officer, Bob Waring, an older gentleman of Norwegian descent, American, had beautiful French, polished French. So the ambassador decided to take Bob with him in the embassy car with a driver up to the mountains where the presidential home was. They got stopped on the way by one of the groups commanding a certain area of Beirut and all were shot. Oh my gosh. And that was a good friend of Bob's and liked the new ambassador very much. And he always wondered if he had been there with his Arabic. If he might have saved them. And my answer was you might have and you might not have and then I would have been a widow with two teenage boys very angry about that daddy being killed so that was a very close call so I knew I knew what had happened we were in Greece still the boys and I and we have this uh, international tribune which is an English paper that all over Europe and Middle East and on the front page that was my husband as a pallbearer with the coffins. At that point, I didn't realize he had almost been in one of those coffins. But I found out later. So I was there with the widow and her family of the man who was killed. The ambassador was a bachelor, so his I think his brother came, we met him. He came out to meet them as if when they brought the coffins out to Greece and then home. So we were very ready to come home. We got home in June that year, 1976. It was our bicentennial year too, I believe. And we bought our first house, before that we'd been renting, in Arlington, back to Virginia, being close to the Department of State. And then in January, I started teaching at George Mason University psychiatric instructor did that for a year next year I found a position I liked much better I was only part time at George Mason and we had two boys facing college when we got back that in 76 they were in 6th 6th and ninth grades they were 3 years difference Yeah, so they went to middle school together at the same school in, in Arlington North Arlington and my sister was a real estate agent at that point. She helped us find our new house. You know, when you're first buying your first house, you have no idea how much money it's going to cost. Mm. So she said, okay, what do you want to pay? We, we told her roughly. And she started laughing. She said, I'll show you some houses at that, but you won't want them. And she was right. We, had, we were not used to having a mortgage payments and that sort of stuff. You know, rent's one thing, but mortgage is a whole different kettle of fish. But thank goodness we did. We had a nice house in Arlington until 19, 
93 when we bought this house. Oh, that was 30 years ago, this fall. So he came out, we came home, he worked. Unfortunately, since he was such an expert on Lebanon, they kept him working on Lebanon, on that desk. From the States, yeah. Here in, in, in Washington for the next six or seven years. Mm. Looking back, I'm thinking, why didn't I insist he change jobs, work on something else for a while? But they were trying to get this thing stopped. But that war went on for like 16 years, so it outlasted my husband. He was on it the first half of it, yeah. working on it, trying to find solutions. He once said that he, uh, he he was fortunate. He got appointed to go to the War College uh, in D.C. It's for higher, it's for military mostly, folks who are rising up through ranks, but it also takes in a certain number of State Department and other agencies of people moving up. So he had a year there, started running, he became a runner, mm lost a lot of weight, completely retooled mentally, really enjoyed being back in academia for a while, and did presentations of his own and stuff too. So his next assignment was to Algeria. Hmm. Now, I had stopped teaching at George Mason and was in the Arlington Mental Health Center as a nurse therapist for outpatient people. And I was very happy in my job. So this is like 83, 1983. I had gone to Arlington to the center in 79. I didn't want to leave my job. I also knew there were very few things for me to do as a psychiatric nurse. I suppose I could have had my private practice for the Americans there, but it was not a particularly happy embassy. There were all sorts of shortages. Uh, basic eggs would be short one week, potatoes another week. Uh, they, so when he went, he carried a whole big shipment of canned goods and things and dog food and everything else to, to have stuff. And whenever visitors were coming from Washington, can we bring you anything? He'd say, bring dog food. So they'd come in with this huge 50-pound bag of dog food for our Adobe that was with him at that point. So I decided at that point, Chip was in UVA here, college student. I didn't like the thing of being that far away from my kid, although he was growing up, but he was still my boy. And Edward had one year of college under his belt. He'd gone to Old Dominion for a year because he got sort of waitlisted too. <laughs> we figured out later that there were so many applicants from Northern Virginia they just couldn't take them all. Happens every year. Yeah. So Edward dropped out of college. He was living with his grandmother in Portsmouth which wasn't a completely happy arrangement but anyway. So he had that under his belt and then transferred later here after he'd been out there for a year and a half. Went with his dad and they took one Doberman, one of our puppies. Our 
that puppy we brought home from uh, Kuwait, I mean from uh, Beirut, we had bred her, and she had 10 puppies. Oh, my goodness. And that year, no one wanted puppies. The sire was belonged to the Doberman Club president in Maryland. We had great contacts, but we just couldn't find. It took a while to get all those puppies located, so we still had one of the puppies. And he'd become Edward's pup at that point. So our son and one Doberman went to Algiers with their daddy. And I had one son and the mama Doberman here in Arlington, in Virginia. We got together for Christmas that year. Chip and I flew to Algeria. Nat came home for Chip's graduation the next year. And we went back and forth this way for the two-year period, which worked great. So Nat comes home in 85 and became the political officer for the U.S. Central Command in Tampa, Florida, which was a great experience for him. General Crist was in charge at that time. Schwarzkopf was next. Now, Schwarzkopf's name is well known because he was in the liberation of Kuwait after that fiasco. Um, So he had two years there, which he enjoyed very much. Then he got a call from President Reagan, and that was a professional career. He wasn't a political appointee, but he got a call from President Reagan. He wanted him to be his ambassador to Kuwait. Hmm. That's how he got to become an ambassador. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. And that's because one of the men, Foreign Service officer, that Nat had mentored uh, during all those years in the Lebanese War in the Department of State was now on the board that suggested names for ambassadors. And they were going to give it to somebody as a reward for something, somebody who wasn't an Arabist who had never been in the Middle East before. And Mark, bless his heart, said, this is the perfect candidate. He speaks Arabic He's had all this experience in all these different places. And so they gave the plum job in Cyprus to the other guy and put Nat in as ambassador-elect. And Nat was really excited about that, I imagine. Plus, he had been out there on the travels that he did with Central Command in that particular area. So he knew all the plans that Central Command had to keep Iran or Russia from taking over the Gulf. Right. And the day he was appointed by the Senate in August of 80, you think this, 87, one of our, one of the ships was hit by the Iranians in the Gulf out there because the war with Iraq had been going on for a while. From 80 to 88, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, that's right. So we were there during the final year of the war. And those guns across the bay, across the gulf, rattled our bedroom doors all the time. And you'd see lightning flashes, you know, and you knew the mortars and tanks and stuff being hurled back and forth. Uh, Kuwait was hit by a couple of those Chinese missiles, and all all they did, I think it, scared a uh, herd of goats or something. <laughs> Nobody got killed, fortunately. Chinese silk 
missiles, is that what they were called? Something like that. Sounds right. Yeah. So that was heavily involved in the uh, reflagging of tankers and things. And we had lots of ships in the Arabian Gulf, you know, trying to keep that war contained, uh, working with the Kuwaitis. And uh, so he went at a very interesting, exciting time. And we were all relieved in 88 when the war was officially over. It was too close for comfort, but things went well. At that point, when he got assigned as an ambassador, I had almost nine years under my belt at the Mental Health Center. Uh, that fall, before he was nominated, I had not gotten a job I deserved <laughs> in advancement at the Mental Health Center. We had had several vacancies that summer. We lost a couple of our psychiatrists. Uh, I had a huge caseload just as a, as a nurse to begin with, with the medications that people needed. My immediate boss had resigned, and so I was acting as the boss for, the, for our little department. But they, he picked someone, the next boss up, interviewed three of us for the job to succeed the one who left. He, I was full-time as was the other girl, and then the third one was a part-timer that I had helped train in my department. She and the guy who picked her had had some kind of special course on administration, and they had a great time talking during her interview with terms that they were learning and excited about. I'm still bitter about this, obviously. Um, I had been operating in emergency mode for months, trying to keep patients covered to meet their needs with a shortage of people to help me, with one, one of the doctors. And so he asked the same questions to all of us, but I was coming at it from a bare bones deal with the fire that's nearest you and that sort of thing. Uh, looking back, I had not tooted my own horn at all. I had not kept him appraised of how hard it was down in the ranks. He had no idea about all that. So when she got the job and I didn't, I was very upset. And I immediately switched from part, from full-time to part-time at a different center, but still in the same network. Uh, I think I surprised everybody because I wasn't acting like my usual, just keep loading it on me. I had had it. That same fall, Nat got promoted the State Department. If he hadn't, he would have been selected out in this stupid program they had that you had to advance at a certain rate. Right. But he made it. 
he made it. And then a few months later, got appointed as a master. So it worked out fine. But I was, I had been shaken up enough that I did not sit his next assignment out. Why should he have all the fun as a master, right, in Kuwait? So that was a very interesting experience. I did have my own uh, little job, as it turned out. I was part-time in the education office at the embassy, mm. paired with an American gal younger than I who was a fine arts major. So I had a lot of the science stuff, and she had the fine arts stuff. And we advised people who wanted to study in the United States, who wanted to come to colleges here. We had all these college catalogs. and This is back in... Uh, 1987 so we were still we weren't doing so much of the electronic stuff yet but that's changed everything now oh, yeah. to uh, help people get prepared and find out what they need to do to which tests they need to take if any you know to get into colleges and stuff so that was fun I had my own little focus so I was working there in the office there and your, son, your sons were back in the states mm -hmm. at this point at this point Edward graduated in Okay, Chip graduated in 84. That was back when he was in Algeria. Edward had come back and then had to do an extra semester to get something, I guess, French. He, he could speak French, but it was Algerian French, yeah. and he didn't have the book knowledge, you know, the the other part where you learn about verbs and stuff in books you know he didn't have the book part right so as it turned out he and this young lady who taught his class they sort of worked together she had not been to, she had not she had learned her french here she had not been in a french-speaking country and he had so they had a lot to talk about and compare so he he enjoyed it i think but it, it kept him i think he that he finished at uva in 88 and that came back for his graduation. So by that time, Chip, who graduated in 84, had gone to work at Fort Meade in Maryland and eventually met Diane there. Meanwhile, he had uh, he got married the first time in 85 to a different lady, and they split up in 1990. He had come to visit us in Kuwait. We were there for three years, 87 to 90, before the invasion. He had come to us that spring and realizing that that marriage was over. Meanwhile, Edward finished then in 88 and went to work as a, a security person, security, uh, not analyst, but agent or whatever you call someone who helps people get their security clearances for the government with the CIA. So both boys were involved in government agencies. I complained about it once to my mother and she said, well, what do you expect? They, that's all they know is U.S. government. So Edward had gone to California for his first assignment with them. And both, and he came at Christmas, 1989, and then Chip followed in the spring, 1990. So we had three good years in Kuwait in the old days before the invasion. 
Nat's predecessor had not been, uh, successor had not been confirmed by the Senate in the summer of 1990. And we didn't know at what point they would say, okay, come on home, because they wanted to get the new ambassador ready to come as Nat was leaving. So end of July 1990, we decided for me to come back home ahead of him, because his tour was finishing, we thought, within the month. And my dad was having a birthday. Uh, by that time, he was in his 80s, I guess, yeah. And the little church I had grown up in, in Bedford County, was having a reunion and homecoming. So I came back to see family and to finish our taxes and that sort of thing and to take over the condo here in Charlottesville because our house in Arlington was still rented at that point. And I had barely unpacked my bags. And I got this phone call in the middle of the night from the Department of State with a good friend on the other line. He was uh, on call and working at night because Iraq had just invaded Kuwait. So I said, okay. I watched CNN for a while, the first reports were coming in. And so I knew Nat was okay up to that point, but I decided I'd rather get some sleep, better get rest for the next day and what was coming. So for several days, I was sort of in a haze thinking, what's my role in this? He was refusing to leave the embassy. They were all, the embassies were commanded to leave. And he basically said, I don't take orders from Baghdad. I take them from Washington and I'm not leaving. But he was helping Americans try to get out and that sort of thing. Because there were hundreds in Kuwait at the time. Fortunately, it was summer. And so many of them were away on vacation, you see. The mm. teachers were mostly away. and But you had a lot of business people. But Kuwait in the summer is not the best place to stay. It's very, very hot and humid. As, yeah, but anyway. I knew he was getting prepared to stay for a while because this invasion wasn't going to go away. And what he did, they started bringing in food and stuff. Now, when he first got to Kuwait, he realized that one of the problems, potentially, was water. They had and have desalination plants. And at that point, of course, the war was still going on with Iraq, with Iran and Iraq. And he could just see one of those missiles hitting some of our water tanks or something. And so he had extra water tanks put all around the flat roofs of the embassy, which stood them in good stead through the invasion, because they had all those water tanks full. And then they cut off the water, you see. So all they had was what they had stored there. And he sent a huge, a big old embassy truck to a warehouse that one of the merchants said, yes, take whatever you need. And he, he, would, he knew otherwise it'd be looted by the Iraqis. So they parked near the tuna fish and brought in thousands of cans of tuna fish and all sorts of stuff, which enabled them to get through. And they still had 
lots of stuff left when he actually left in mid-December there. So they hunkered down, and because they didn't vacate the embassy completely, they then cut them off, cut off the electricity, cut off the water, and would not let anyone go in or out of the embassy. One of the helpful things was that Jesse Jackson, who had visited us the first fall we were there on one of his tours in the Middle East, went to Baghdad and got permission to fly down to Kuwait and to talk to the people in the embassy and to bring out old folks, old men. Uh, we knew any American caught outside the embassy was destined to be a prisoner of, of Iraq. They called them their guest. And they put Americans in key places they didn't want a military operation to go on in case we decided to fight them. So the folks in the embassy during August, before they got closed off, were in contact with people, Americans all over the place, and whenever the Iraqi soldiers were arriving at this hotel or that area, would let them know in advance whether or not to meet one of our cars and come into the embassy for a sanctuary or get to another safe place or something. So they were doing all they could, and after they cut the phones, phone lines too, some of the people on the embassy grounds strangers you know had come in for safekeeping for safety were able to get into the old lines and revive some of them so they had phone contact at all times with others in hiding throughout the city but you read about that in the book if you read I read the book. parts of books yeah. right yeah the I should just let you stick to the book on that because it's got all the important stuff in there well, your husband did some amazing things in those three and a half months he was in the embassy compound. Uh, the fact that they cut off electricity and water and, and they, telephones. And they survived. They survived. And it's because they somehow they formed a community, supported each other, and did what they needed to do. So they had people on the phones talking to people all over the town. They had people at the both of the guard at the gates to the embassy. See, we had this huge wall around the five-acre compound there, and they were on duty to make sure that no Iraqis were coming in. Of course, no. but we were They were surrounded by the Iraqi troops at all times. So, what were you doing back in the states when your <laughs> husband was going through that? Okay, that first week, I thought, what What am I supposed to do? What can I do? And our friend, who became the next ambassador to Kuwait in 1991, and I were in touch. And then he would send messages to Nat, who would send messages back to me through him. And he was very busy. Things would get garbled. And finally he said, Margie, come up here. I'll arrange it so that you can be a volunteer, or actually call me a consultant eventually to the crisis, crisis task force. You know the layout there, you know a lot of the people there, you know, and you can work with the families here and help get messages back and forth. And that's what I did. I went to the Department of State. When they asked how they could help me, I said, 
I need a parking space. And they gave me one in the building for those months through mid-December. So from early August through mid-December, I was their person here. And every now and then, I could even talk to Nat for a few minutes. Their problem was that they didn't know how much generator fuel they had. And they figured they'd, they'd probably go offline uh, by Christmas time. As it turned out, they came home in plenty of time. Wow, you say plenty of time. But they had Mid-December. Yeah, they had less than two weeks. Probably. Yeah. They even had a system so that they could blare Christmas carols. <laughs> they had the flag flying, you know. And that he didn't realize until later when he got out how much it meant to Kuwaitis that we had stayed. Oh, I'm sure it meant the world to him. Oh, it did. It did. So I uh, worked there in the State Department and had access to their phone system. I could dial anybody anywhere who had family caught up there and they could get to me too. Especially when they had angry or upset people, they would, it was a good thing I was a psychiatric nurse, I guess. <laughs> that came, I recommend that for spouses of people in the Middle East at least. <laughs> so yeah, we've been through several wars. Sounds like it. Uh, when he came home, he came home in mid-December. Um, and I imagine he, did, he didn't work for a while. They arranged for him to give speeches to foreign service groups, uh, local groups all over the country. We went south and hit most of the states going through Florida and then across the panhandle to the lower part of the United States, on out to California. And he flew up to Washington State, I think it was, for some speeches when we got to San Francisco. And then we came across a middle route. This was in April and March, March, April. Uh, I guess we left in February. We left about the time they were liberating Kuwait, so we knew all about that. And we did all our travels. It, it was a, at least six weeks, maybe eight weeks. And visited our son in California, spoke to his group out there. and. Uh, and saw many friends from Kuwait who had come, who gotten out of there. The women and children had gotten out. Their husbands mostly were still in Kuwait. Uh, so lots of friends. That, that was a great time. They had me speaking too to hospital groups and others, and visiting uh, handicapped children's hospitals and stuff. You know things that I was interested in. Schools of nursing. Oh. Yeah. Well, you and Nat had been through something that most people can't even fathom. And we're able to do things on even separated that way, both ends. Yeah. yeah. Uh, May eighteenth of nineteen ninety one. Do you remember where your husband was? Here in Charlottesville. He spoke at the commencement exercises. That in nineteen ninety one, the year I graduated, he was my commencement speaker. Well, I had to laugh because a good friend here was also in your class, and she didn't remember who the speaker was. <laughs> I don't remember who mine was either. You know, it's not the sort of thing that as you graduate, you're not going to be focused you're on. You're not thinking about it. Yeah. No, no, you're you're just there to get your diploma <laughs> and celebrate. <laughs> but he was he was definitely the selection, right? Given what he had been through. <laughs> well, he and John Castine were good friends. 
they were in high school, not the same high school, but they were in high, Portsmouth High School, two different ones, and both were on debate teams, and so they had known each other. And then John followed Nat to UVA for his undergraduate degree and uh, had joined the debate club here. Nat was an assistant instructor while he was working on his PhD. And so there was John and Nat meeting up again due to debate and that sort of thing. And years later, we were at a reception at Cars Hill when John was president here. And I had, I think it was my brother and his wife who were here and we took them to the reception and introduced them. And John said, yes, he said, I remember having spaghetti dinners at their house in our apartment here. I had forgotten it, but we did. We, you know, Nat would bring some of the boys home every now and then for spaghetti dinner. And of course, being undergraduates, I mean, being away from home, they loved home-cooked meals, even if it was simply spaghetti and salad and dessert, you know, so he remembered that. And he's been very, very helpful to me since he's now retired, but I'm in touch by email every now and then. And when Nat died, he sent a beautiful flower arrangement for me. Uh, so I just finished a letter. It took me weeks to compose this letter to the Kuwaiti ambassador in Washington asking if they might honor Nat by endowing this fund that we started to help Nat's program at UVA. We have a, Nat years ago started working on endowing a chair, which became the Ramazani chair. Dr. Ramazani was a famous guy in the political foreign service program here. And it, it took a long time because it, it takes a while to endow a chair. You, you need millions of dollars for that. He finally got it done before he retired. I was afraid he was going to end up <laughs> retiring before he finished that job. But he, he got it done with a lot of help from some of the development people at UVA. They finally got the money and got it all together. And they found the perfect professor to hold the chair. He's a young Kuwaiti history major uh, who had been employed for two years here at UVA before we even knew he existed. Mm the perfect person for this chair to take over Nat's programs on the Arabian Peninsula and Arabian Gulf studies. And his name is Fahad Bishara. And Dr. Bishara, he's still a young man, he's in his 40s, I think. His specialty is the Indian Ocean area, which the Gulf, Arabian Gulf drains into. And so He's written books on East African countries and the trade routes. His grandfather was a captain of one of those big ships that used to sail, homemade ships that used to sail from Kuwait down the coast of Africa and bring back special trees, timber to build the boats with. But mm. they also went to the east, far east, along the Indian subcontinent area right. all the way out. Indian Ocean's a pretty big part of the world, actually, when you look at the map. But it's an understudied group. It's not much, it's not much research has been done on it. And so 
UVA is becoming the center for that sort of study on mm. that area. And so we not only have the Arabian Gulf countries there, but we have the entire Indian Oceans. And so he met Nat and spent a good year working with Nat after Nat retired. Uh, this all happened after his retirement. And got to know what Nat's ideas and programs were like. And so he's enlarging things already. We've got the whole Indian Ocean area now. And I'm just so happy about that. It's, it's a great person to hand that off to. It was a perfect like. person to hand yeah. it off to. Did I send you the... I don't think you did. Because before Nat fell and ended up in the hospital for his final illness, there was, we did an interview in the living room for the Colonnade Club here which collects historical th things. And we talked about his career here at UVA and, his, and the Kuwait thing and all that stuff. I'll send it to you. And you'll see that he was still functioning, still going over to his office every day. I'd love to David listen to it. It saved our marriage. You know, he was working over there and I was here. <laughs> Absence can be a good thing. <laughs> it, it can be. I will send that to both of you if you want. No, that'd be great. I'll need to get your email. Yeah. I didn't give one part. Is that still running? It is. It is. Okay. Our younger son died by suicide in 96. After Nat got here at UVA, and he was ambassador in residence for a year at UVA, and then we decided he didn't really want to go to Kyrgyzstan as ambassador. It would be another, like starting a new embassy somewhere, and that's for younger people. And after I read the Post report that the Department of State does on each country, you know, before you go, you can read about the country and what's going on there and how safe is it. I said, Nat, we can't breathe the air there. It's all polluted from the Russians being there and polluting the place. They do that everywhere they are. We saw that terrible in Estonia when we did some work out there uh, after he came back. You can't breathe the air. You can't ride in their airplanes. They kept crashing, and that was the only airline that would go into that country. You can't eat the vegetables. They're polluted. Yeah. I said, we did our frontier bus stuff in Abu Dhabi when it was still like a frontier town, oil town developing. I'm not up to it. I don't want to go. He felt that it wasn't much of a reward after what he had done in Kuwait to give him a country like this where there were so many problems and all. He had always been interested, of course, in Russia and the countries that connect with it, the border countries from Finland on down. And his dissertation back in the day was on the Kurds before anyone else had ever heard of the Kurdistan or the Kurds. And so that would have been interesting from that point of view, from his older uh, interest with the Soviet problems and all. But he decided enough was enough. And he was always an advocate for people in universities, in academia, to have practical experience as well as the literary background in academics. Right. 
So he was practicing what he preached when he decided to come here, and John Castine was delighted to welcome him. And they gave him a professorship and a chair, you know, and all that. And so he was here from early 93. Yeah, he retired from the Department of State December 31st, 1992, after being here as ambassador in residence and all that, and started the next day for insurance purposes with UVA. So he was here from 92 to 2015 as a professor of research. And uh, thank God. And then that's 93, we he said, okay, we can get a bigger place. We were sort of crammed up in our condo at that point still. So we were able to sell the house in Arlington in August, and we settled on this in September. And then we, the renter had left the previous uh, previous owner in midsummer, so we had a place to empty our house in Arlington and bring it down here and store it in in this office. It's been used for many things. We had a storage place, and then they they finally left here in October when he had finished his house in his new place, and it just worked out really well. And you're still here. And we're, you know, once we got here, this is what we wanted. We wanted to age in place here. And so we have all sorts of handholds and bars in the bathroom and high commodes, you know, everything. And if, if he had used the handholds on this garage door sides, he wouldn't have fallen backwards and hit his head on that wood shelf out there. Yeah. But he had had many falls, his coordination, and he was aging quickly. And I think the stress he was under in so many of our places added to that. I think it probably sped up his aging. Yeah. I do. I really do. Yeah. But you can't, that's something you can't really prove. So here we are. Well, Margie, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for listening to me babble on and on. My history major friend Rob is here taking notes, and he's very happy that he could be here. And my daughter, who plans to major in history, is also glad to be here. Good choice, Lindsay. <laughs> that, was, that was Edward's major, too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.